Section 5 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Martina. The South Pole by Roll Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 5, Volume 1, Chapter 2. Plan and Preparations, Part 2. Before I proceed to our further equipment, I must say a few more words about the dogs. The greatest difference between Scott's and my equipment lay undoubtedly in our choice of draught animals. We had heard that Scott, relying on his own experience and that of Shackleton, had come to the conclusion that Manchurian ponies were superior to dogs on the barrier. Among those who were acquainted with the Eskimo dog, I do not suppose I was the only one who was startled on first hearing this. Afterwards, as I read the different narratives, and was able to form an accurate opinion of the conditions of surface and going, my astonishment became even greater. Although I had never seen this part of the Antarctic regions, I was not long in forming an opinion diametrically opposed to that of Shackleton and Scott, for the conditions both of going and surface were precisely what one would desire for sledging with Eskimo dogs, to judge from the descriptions of these explorers. If Perry could make a record trip on the Arctic with ice-dogs, one ought, surely, with equally good tackle, to be able to beat Peary's record on the splendidly even surface of the barrier. There must be some misunderstanding or other at the bottom of the Englishman's estimate of the Eskimo's dog utility in the polar regions. Can it be that the dog has not understood his master, or is it the master who has not understood his dog? The right footing must be established from the outset. The dog must understand that he has to obey in everything, and the master must know how to make himself respected. If obedience is once established, I am convinced that the dog will be superior to all other draught animals over these long distances. Another very important reason for using the dog is that this small creature can much more easily cross the numerous slight snow bridges that are not to be avoided on the barrier and on the glaciers. If a dog falls into a crevice, there is no great harm done. A target is harness and he is out again. But it is another matter with a pony. This comparatively large and heavy animal of course falls through far more easily, and if this happens it is a long and stiff job to get the beast hauled up again. Unless, indeed, the traces have broken and the pony lies at the bottom of a crevice one thousand feet deep. And then there is the obvious advantage that the dog can be fed on dog. One can reduce one's pack little by little, slaughtering the feebler ones and feeding the chosen with them. In this way they get fresh meat. Our dogs lived on dog's flesh and pemmican the whole way, and this enabled them to do splendid work. And if we ourselves wanted a piece of fresh meat, we could cut off a delicate little fillet. It tasted to us as good as the best beef. The dogs do not object at all. As long as they get their share, they do not mind what part of their comrade's carcass it comes from. All that was left after one of these canine meals was the teeth of the victim, and if it had been a really hard day, these also disappeared. If we take a step further from the barrier to the plateau, it would seem that every doubt of the dog's superiority must disappear. Not only can one get the dogs up over the huge glaciers that lead to the plateau, but one can make full use of them the whole way. Ponies, on the other hand, have to be left at the foot of the glacier, while the men themselves have the doubtful pleasure of acting as ponies. As I understand Shackleton's account, there can be no question of hauling the ponies over the steep and creviced glaciers. It must be rather hard to have to abandon one's motive power voluntarily when only a quarter of the distance has been covered. 
I for my part prefer to use it all the way. From the very beginning I saw that the first part of our expedition, from Norway to the barrier, would be the most dangerous section. If we could only reach the barrier with our dog safe and well, the future would be bright enough. Fortunately, all my comrades took the same view of the matter, and with their cooperation we succeeded not only in bringing the dogs safely to our field of operations, but in landing them in far better condition than we had received them. Their number was also considerably increased on the way, which seems to be another proof of a flourishing state of things. To protect them against damp and heat, we laid a loose deck of planed boards about three inches above the fixed deck, an arrangement by which all the rain and spray ran underneath the dogs. In this way we kept them out of the water, which must always be running from side to side on the deck of a deep-laden vessel on her way to the Antarctic Ocean. Going through the tropics, this loose deck did double service. It always afforded a somewhat cool surface, as there was a fresh current of air between the two decks. The main deck, which was black with tar, would have been unbearably hot for the animals. The false deck was high and kept fairly white during the whole voyage. We carried awnings in addition, chiefly on account of the dogs. These awnings could be stretched over the whole vessel and give the dogs constant protection from the burning sun. I still cannot help smiling when I think of the compassionate voices that were raised here and there, and even made their way into print, about the cruelty to animals on board the Fram. Presumably, these cries came from tender-hearted individuals who themselves kept watchdogs tied up. Besides our four-footed companions, we took with us a two-footed one, not so much on account of the serious work on the polar regions as for pleasant entertainment on the way. This was our canary, Fritjof. It was one of the many presents made to the expedition, and not the least welcome of them. It began to sing as soon as it came on board, and has now kept it going on two circumnavigations through the most inhospitable waters of the earth. It probably holds the record as a polar traveller among its kind. Later on we had a considerable collection of various families, pigs, fowls, sheep, cats, and rats yes unfortunately we knew what it was to have rats on board the most repulsive of all creatures and the worst vermin i know of but we have declared war against them and off they shall go before the fram starts on her next voyage we got them in bonus errors and the best thing will be to bury them in their native land on account of the rather straitened circumstances the expedition had to contend with i had to look twice at every shilling before i spent it Articles of clothing are an important factor in a polar expedition, and I consider it necessary that the expedition should provide each of its members with the actual polar clothing. If one left this part of the equipment to each individual, I am afraid things would look badly before the journey was done. I must admit that there was some temptation to do this. It would have been very much cheaper if I had simply given each man a list of what clothes he was required to provide for himself but by so doing I should have missed the opportunity of personally supervising the quality of the clothing to the extent I desired. It was not an outfit that cut a dash by its appearance, but it was warm and strong. From the commissariat stores at Horton I obtained many excellent articles. I owe Captain Pedersen, the present chief of the commissariat department, my heartiest thanks for the courtesy he has always showed me when I came to get things out of him. Through him I had about two hundred blankets served out to me. Now the reader must not imagine a bed and bedding. 
such as he may see exhibited in the windows of furniture shops with thick white blankets so delicate that in spite of their thickness they look as if they might float away of their own accord so light and fine do they appear it was not blankets like these that captain pedersen gave us we should not have known what to do with them if he had the blankets the commissariat gave us were of an entirely different sort as to their colour well i can only call it indeterminable and they did not give one the impression that they would float away either if one let go of them no they would keep on the ground right enough they were felted and pressed together into a thick hard mass from the dawn of time they had served our brave warriors at sea and it is by no means impossible that some of them had gruesome stories to tell of the days of torrents cold the first thing i did on obtaining possession of these treasures was to get them into the dying vat they were unrecognizable when we got them back in ultramarine blue or whatever it is called the metamorphosis was complete their warlike past was wiped out my intention was to have these two hundred blankets made into polar clothing and i took counsel with myself how i might get this done to disclose the origin of the stuff would be an unfortunate policy no tailor in the world would make clothes out of old blankets i was pretty sure of that i had to hit upon some stratagem i heard of a man who was a capable worker at his trade and asked him to come and see me my office looked exactly like a woolen warehouse with blankets everywhere the tailor arrived was that the stuff yes that was it just imported from abroad a great bargain a lot of samples dirt cheap i had put on my most innocent and unconcerned expression i saw the tailor glance at me sideways i suppose he thought the samples were rather large a closely woven stuff said he holding it up to the light i could almost swear it was felted we went carefully through every single sample and took the number it was a long and tedious business and i was glad when i saw that at last we were nearing the end over in a corner there lay a few more we had reached the one hundred and ninety-third so there could not be many in the pile i was occupied with something else and the tailor went through the remainder by himself i was just congratulating myself on the apparently fortunate result of the morning's work when i was startled by an exclamation from the man in the corner it sounded like the bellow of a mad bull alas there stood the tailor enveloped in ultramarine and swinging over his head a blanket the colour changent of which left no doubt as to the origin of the directly imported goods with a look of thunder the man quitted me and i sank in black despair i never saw him again the fact was that in my hurry i had forgotten the sample blanket that captain pedersen had sent me that was the cause of the catastrophe well i finally succeeded in getting the work executed and it is certain that no expedition has ever had warmer and stronger clothing than this it was a great favour on board i also thought it best to provide good oilskins and especially good sea boots for every man the sea boots were therefore made to measure and of the very best material i had them made by the firm i have always regarded as the best in that branch how then shall i describe our grief when on the day we were to wear our beautiful sea boots we discovered that most of them were useless some of the men could dance a hornpipe in theirs without taking the boots off their deck others by exerting all their strength could not squeeze their foot through the narrow way and reach paradise 
The leg was so narrow that even the most delicate little foot could not get through it, and to make up for this the foot of the boot was so huge that it could comfortably accommodate twice as much as its owner could show. Very few were able to wear their boots. We tried changing, but that was no use. The boots were not made for any creatures of this planet. But sailors are sailors, wherever they may be, and it is not easy to beat them. Most of them knew the proverb that one pair of boots that fit is better than ten pairs that you can't put on, and had brought their own with them, and so we got out of that difficulty. We took three sets of linen underclothing for every man to wear in the warm regions. This part of the equipment was left to each individual. Most men possess a few old shirts, and not much more is wanted through the tropics. For the cold regions there were two sets of extra-thick woollen underclothing, two thick hand-knitted woollen jerseys, six pairs of knitted stockings, Iceland and other lighter jackets, socks and stockings from the penitentiary. Besides these we had a quantity of clothing from the army depots. I owe many thanks to General Kilhoe for the kind way in which he fell in with all my wishes. From this quarter we obtained outer clothing for cold and warm climates, underclothes, boots, shoes, wind clothing, and cloths of different kinds. As the last item of our personal equipment, I may mention that each man had a suit of sealskin from Greenland. Then there were such things as darning wool, sewing yarn, needles of all possible sizes, buttons, scissors, tapes, broad and narrow, black and white, blue and red. I may safely assert that nothing was forgotten. We were well and amply equipped in every way. Another side of our preparations which claimed some attention was the fitting up of the quarters we were to inhabit, the saloons and the cabins. What an immense difference it makes if one lives in comfortable surroundings. For my part, I can do twice the amount of work when I see tidiness and comfort around me. The saloons on the Fram were very handsomely and tastefully fitted. Here we owe, in the first place, our respectful thanks to King Hakon and Queen Maud for the photographs they presented to us. They were the most precious of our gifts. The ladies of Horton gave us a number of pretty things for decorating the cabins, and they will no doubt be glad to hear of the admiration they aroused wherever we went. "'Is this really a polar ship?' people asked. "'We expected to see nothing but wooden benches and bare walls.' And they began to talk about boudoirs and that sort of thing. Besides splendid embroideries, our walls were decorated with the most wonderful photographs. It would have rejoiced the giver of these to hear all the words of praise that have been bestowed upon them. The sleeping quarters I left to individual taste. Every man could take a bit of his home in his own little compartment. The bedclothes came from the naval factory at Horton. They were first-class work, like everything else that came from there. We owe our best thanks to the giver of the soft blankets that have so often been our joy and put warmth into us after a bitter day. They came from a woollen mill in Troncham. I must also mention our paper supply, which was in all respects as fine and elegant as it could possibly be, the most exquisite note-paper stamped with a picture of the Fram and the name of the expedition, in large and small size, broad and narrow, old style and new style, every kind of note-paper, in fact, of pens and pen-holders, pencils, black and coloured, India rubber, Indian ink, drawing pins and other kinds of pins, ink and ink powder, white chalk and red chalk, gum arabic and other gums, date holders and almanacs, ship's logs and private diaries, notebooks and sledging diaries, and many other things of the same sort. 
we have such a stock that we shall be able to circumnavigate the earth several times more before running short this gift does honour to the firm which sent it every time i have sent a letter or written in my diary i have had a grateful thought for the givers from one of the largest houses in christiana we had a complete set of kitchen utensils and breakfast and dinner services of all the best kind the cups plates knives forks spoons jugs glasses etc were all marked with the ship's name we carried an extraordinary copious library presents of books were showered upon us in great quantities i suppose the fram's library at the present moment contains at least three thousand volumes for our entertainment we also had a good many different games one of these became our favourite pastime in leisure evenings down in the south packs of cards we had by the dozen and many of them have already been well used a gramophone with a large supply of records was i think our best friend of musical instruments we had a piano a violin a flute mandolins not forgetting a mouth-organ and an accordion all the publishers had been kind enough to send us music so that we could cultivate this art as much as we wished christmas presents streamed in from all sides i suppose we had about five hundred on board christmas trees and decorations for them with many other things to amuse us at christmas were sent with us by friends and acquaintances people have indeed been kind to us and i can assure the givers that all their presents have been and are still much appreciated we were well supplied with wines and spirits thanks to one of the largest firms of wine merchants in christiana an occasional glass of wine or a tot of spirits were things that we all without exception were very glad of the question of alcohol on polar expeditions has often been discussed personally i regard alcohol used in moderation as a medicine in the polar regions i mean of course so long as one is in winter quarters it is another matter on sledge journeys there we all know from experience that alcohol must be banished not because a drink of spirits can do any harm but on account of the weight and space on sledging journeys one has of course to save weight as much as possible and to take only what is strictly necessary and i do not include alcohol under the head of strictly necessary things nor was it only in winter quarters that we had use for alcohol but also on the long monotonous voyage through raw cold and stormy regions a tot of spirits is often a very good thing when one goes below after a bitter watch on deck and is just turning in a total abstainer will no doubt turn up his nose and ask whether a cup of good warm coffee would not do as well for my part i think the quantity of coffee people pour into themselves at such times is far more harmful than a little lysoma snaps and think of the important part a glass of wine or toddy plays in social gatherings on such a voyage two men have fallen out a little in the course of the week are reconciled at once by the scent of rum the past is forgiven and they start afresh in friendly cooperation take alcohol away from these little festivities and you will soon see the difference it is a sad thing someone will say that men absolutely must have alcohol to put them in a good humour and i am quite ready to agree but seeing that our nature is what it is we must try to make the best of it it seems as though we civilised human beings must have stimulating drinks and that being so we have to follow our own convictions i am for a glass of toddy let who will eat plum cake and swill hot coffee heartburn and other troubles are often the result of this kind of refreshment a little toddy doesn't hurt anybody the consumption of alcohol on the fram's third voyage was as follows 
one dram and fifteen drops at dinner on Wednesdays and Sundays, and a glass of toddy on Saturday evenings. On holidays there was an additional allowance. We were all well supplied with tobacco and cigars from various firms at home and abroad. We had enough cigars to allow us one each on Saturday evenings and after dinner on Sundays. Two Christiana manufacturers sent us their finest bonbons and drops, and a foreign firm gave us gala pita, so that it was no rare thing to see the polar explorers helping themselves to a sweet meat or a piece of chocolate. An establishment at Dramman gave us as much fruit syrup as we could drink, and if the giver only knew how many times we blessed the excellent product he supplied, I am sure he would be pleased. On the homeward march from the Pole we looked forward every day to getting nearer to our supply of syrup. From three different firms in Christiana we received all our requirements in the way of cheese, biscuits, tea, sugar and coffee. The packing of the last named was so efficient that although the coffee was roasted, it is still as fresh and aromatic as the day it left the warehouse. Another firm sent us soap enough for five years, and one uses a good deal of that commodity even on a polar voyage. A man in Christiana had seen to the care of our skin, hair, and teeth, and it is not his fault if we have not delicate skins, abundant growth of hair, and teeth like pearls, for the outfit was certainly complete enough. An important item of the equipment is the medical department, and here my advisers were Dr. Jacob Roll and Dr. Holth. Therefore nothing was wanting. A chemist in Christiana supplied all the necessary medicines as a contribution, carefully chosen and beautifully arranged. Unfortunately, no doctor accompanied the expedition, so that I was obliged to take all the responsibility myself. Lieutenant Jertsen, who had a pronounced aptitude both for drawing teeth and amputating legs, went through a lightning course at the hospital and the dental hospital. He clearly showed that much may be learnt in a short time by giving one's mind to it. With surprising rapidity and apparent confidence, Lieutenant Gertsen disposed of the most complicated cases, whether invariably to the patient's advantage is another question, which I shall leave undecided. He drew teeth with a dexterity that strongly reminded one of the conjurer's art. One moment he showed an empty pair of forceps, the next there was a big molar in their grip. The yells one heard while the operation was in progress seemed to indicate that it was not entirely painless. A match factory gave us all the safety matches we wanted. They were packed so securely that we could quite well have towed the cases after us in the sea all the way, and found the matches perfectly dry on arrival. We had a quantity of ammunition and explosives. As the whole of the lower hold was full of petroleum, the Fram had a rather dangerous cargo on board. We therefore took all possible precautions against fire. Extinguishing apparatus was fitted in every cabin, and wherever practicable, and pumps with hose were always in readiness on deck. The necessary ice tools, such as saws from two to six metres long, ice drills, etc., were not forgotten. We had a number of scientific instruments with us. Professors Nansen and Helen Hansen had devoted many an hour to our oceanographical equipment, which was therefore a model of what such an equipment should be. Lieutenants Prestrud and Jertsen had both gone through the necessary course in oceanography under Helen Hansen at the Bergen Biological Station. I myself had spent a summer there and taken part in one of the oceanographical courses. 
Professor Helen Hansen was a brilliant teacher. I am afraid I cannot assert that I was an equally brilliant pupil. Professor Mon had given us a complete meteorological outfit. Among the instruments belonging to the Fram I may mention a pendulum apparatus, an excellent astronomical theodolite and a sextant. Lieutenant Prestrud studied the use of the pendulum apparatus under Professor Schultz, and the use of the astronomical theodolite under Professor Gilmaiden. We had an additional several sextants and artificial horizons, both glass and mercury. We had binoculars of all sizes, from the largest to the smallest. End of section 5 Recording by Martina, Sydney, Australia